0: Welcome to the Emerald City
1: Sportscast. Wilson, it as he throws deep
0: downfield. It's going to be
1: caught by Metcalf for the touchdown.
0: Hosted by longtime Northwest sports journalist Dan Viennes. Here's a drive deep to left. He has done it
1: again. Wow. God. Lewis, three games, three home runs. ever
0: 5 2. Brought to you by Hollywood and Vines Recording <coughs> Studio. World class audio recording right in the heart of the Woodenville Winery District.
1: Wide receivers to either side. Russell takes the snap, drops back. He's going to throw down the middle. He's got a man. The ball is caught. Game over, it is baby. A Touchdown. The game is over. The Seahawks are going back to the Super Bowl. And
0: now. Broadcasting live from the Dan Cave Studios, here's your host, Dan Viennes. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Emerald City Sportscast. I am your host, Dan Viennes. It is July 7th, 2021. Hopefully, everybody, I I know at least here in Washington, is enjoying uh, things being reopened again. Mariners at full capacity again over the weekend. Seahawks have announced that they will be at full capacity at Lumen Field this upcoming season, which is coming up quickly. Uh, Training camp just three weeks away for the Seahawks. Um, But we're going to talk all baseball today. Today is our Mariners midseason wrap-up show or review show, part review, part preview. Uh, Longtime friend and guest and uh, friend of the show, Eric Briggs, will be joining me to break that down in just a moment. But before we turn to baseball, let's stay on football. If you're watching, you can see the graphic. Let me bring that full screen again. Uh, big show coming up on July 19th. Uh, just under two weeks now at Aussie's Tavern in Seattle. It's in Lower Queen Anne uh, on Mercer and First. Old school, classic, historic tavern in, uh, in downtown Seattle. If you've never been there before. Uh, part sports bar, part neighborhood lounge, part nightclub. We're going to use it for the former. Uh, really excited about this. Bill Alstadt and Keith Myers of the Seahawks Playbook Podcast. They've been on my show. I've been on their show. Uh, one, of the, one of the best Seahawk podcasts out there. If you haven't listened to it, you should definitely check it out. We started kicking this idea around uh, a couple of months ago when Bill said that he was going to be coming up to the area and visiting. Bill lives in Arizona. Keith lives in the Portland, Vancouver, Washington area. And so it started as just kind of a just a brainstorm and now it's a thing. The three of us are going to get together at Aussies and do a live, kind of a combined crossover episode of our podcast. The three of us, we're going to live stream it and then we'll both post it uh, to our respective podcast platforms. Um, And we're going to do a Seahawks training camp preview. It's going to be two, three hours long. It's going to be during happy hour at Aussies from three to six. So come on down, and enjoy the specials. We got some cool giveaways. We've got Seahawks preseason tickets to the Chargers game to give away. Uh, They're my tickets. They're good tickets. Don't screw them up. And uh, we've got five uh, Fanatics gift cards to give away as well. Get all the Seahawks swag and gear you want. Um, Some other things we're working on also, and it's going to be a fun atmosphere. Um, Really hoping for a good turnout down there so that we get some interaction with the live crowd. We're going to have you, you get to fill out raffle sheets on that. You get to turn in questions. We'll take the best questions. We've got a couple of live guests set up. Corbin Smith of Seahawk Maven will be joining us as well. We're going to try to make this thing as big as we can. Um, So it'll be live, but we want you to be there in person. Again, that's uh, roughly three to six during happy hour at Aussies in Seattle, July 19th. That's uh, uh, a week from this coming Monday. So we'll leave that up there for just a moment. But until then, we're going to talk mostly baseball. And this is part of the reason you haven't heard from me much in the last month or so. It's, uh, it's a lot of things combined. After the draft is always kind of a letdown. Um, very intense around that time, free agency in the draft. Uh, and then there's kind of a, a dearth of news after that. It's, the, it's early in the baseball season. Uh, a little bit of burnout goes into that and things have been picking up. Life's busier. Uh, Things are opened up again. Work's busier. So, took a little time off, but it's time to get back into it. Eric and I are going to go over, basically, we're going to look back at the first half of the season, kind of give you some some of our thoughts on pleasant surprises, biggest disappointments, where we think this team really is, a lot of debate out there. Should they go for it? Should they be aggressive at the trade deadline? Should they stay the course? Some people are getting impatient with the rebuild, getting impatient with Scott Service and Jerry Depoto. They want to win now. It's understandable. Is it the right time? What about Mitch Hanniger? Should they trade him? Should they trade some of their bullpen pieces? We'll discuss that. We'll actually look ahead to the draft as well, happening this weekend later than normal, uh, in conjunction with All-Star Weekend. I actually think it's a good move by MLB. We'll talk about our favorite draft prospects. The Mariners hold the number 12 pick. Uh, and then we'll look ahead to the second se- the second half of the season and discuss where we think this season is going um so let's just get right into it let's bring Eric in from uh from his uh cozy his palatial estate in uh the phoenix arizona area uh thanks for joining us again eric how you doing buddy okay hang on I am not hearing you. We are having technical difficulties. And it's because I had you on mute. That was my fault. <laughs> hey, I, my opinion? I told you I was going to be rusty.
1: <laughs> you did.
0: Uh, how are things down there in the desert?
1: Everything's great. Loving this 115 degree weather. It's just phenomenal.
0: Hey, you know what? For the first time ever, people up here can sort of relate. Because for three days last weekend, we were – Phoenix. the Phoenix area was the only place in the country last weekend that was hotter than Seattle. As a guy who spent a lot of his life up here, try to wrap your head around that. I mean, it, it was crazy to be here in it, but that had to be weird for you even looking at the forecast and what was happening up here with the heat wave. I actually felt
1: very bad for you and everyone else that I told me and do up there because you, I know – None of you besides yourself were prepared for the of
0: triple digit e. Yeah, I think uh, I saw a stat. I think it was something around 40% or less of homes in this area have air conditioning. Uh, yeah. Down there, it's 99%. I can hear your air conditioner going <laughs> in the background. Um it's a little different and and I I get a little bit annoyed and this even happens up here when it gets you know what it's like up here when when it gets over 88 people start to complain and and then and then you always get the people from other parts of the country that chime in and oh poor you and we we deal with this all the time well it's different it's different we're not acclimated to it we don't have ac it was It it was like I was in a dream. Like I would open the back door to let Zoe out to go to the bathroom and it felt like I was opening a blast furnace. It was just weird. So I I don't know how you do it on a day in day out basis. I was down there for three months in 2016, but it was August, September, October. I think it was upper 90s, kind of felt like 90. I never got to see the good stuff. I've seen it now. Well, listen, let's talk about some baseball. Uh, the Mariners aren't quite at the halfway point. They've got the rest of this homestand against the Yankees and Angels to wrap things up. An ugly 12-1 loss to the Yanks last night. They dropped to 45-41, and so we're we're technically past the halfway point. Third place in the American League West, eight games behind the Astros, who annoyingly are still good. Three-and-a-half games behind the A's and three-and-a-half games Three and a half out of the wild card, so three and a half games behind the A's for the second wild card. Four and a half out of the first wild card uh, with the Rays. They land one on the on the All Star team, and you say Kikuchi. Um, it, it, let me let me start with this. At the beginning of the season, if I had told you that after 86 games the Mariners would be 45 and 41, would you have taken that?
1: Of course, of course I would. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, I think you remember I said this year when we did our pre- season preview was if we get 500 that's an accomplishment and but i also prefaced it i said but i don't think it's also an re- unreachable goal i knew it was a very reachable goal for this team now if you would have told me we're having a marco and paxton mm-hmm. and lewis now you add that in and you still say we're 45 and 41 then i probably would have been like mm, i doubt it but you know i gotta say you know Flexen, kikuchi the bullpen um, Hanager played well Francis played well Fraley on fire uh, Crawford has turned into a legitimate bat so far through the first 86 games so I mean there's a lot of, a
0: lot of huge upside there yeah that's I, you touched on some of that stuff what's, what's strange to me and this is where we kind of get into you know there, there's still and there's always going to be until they're a legitimate winner There's so much Mariner fan, uh, you know, battered fan syndrome at work here. And there's so much cynicism around a lot of the Mariners fan base that there's people out there complaining that things aren't as good as they could be and complaining about the job the GM and the head coach or the manager have done. And we're going to get into that a little bit later. But they're 45 and 41. They have a winning record. They're one of the hottest teams in baseball over the last month, uh, really going back six weeks and and yet, you look at the things you mentioned. What if James Paxson hadn't gotten hurt? What if Marco Gonzalez had been healthy all season long and dialed in? And just as he was getting dialed in, then he left the team for two weeks. What if Kyle Lewis had been healthy in, in the lineup the whole year? It, it's, it's bizarre to think that maybe they're underachieving in some respects.
1: I mean, I think you certainly have to take that into account because – if you look at all the questions about entering the season, and granted, a lot of it had to do with all of our young talent. You know, Sheffield, Dunn, and the starting rotation. Flexon was an unknown. Kikuchi hadn't produced yet. So, hey, Marco, we knew Marco. Hey, as long as the Paxons stay healthy, Patson's great. You know, we know who Seager is, we know who Andrew is. But Lewis and Fraley, uh, Trammell, Evan White. you know, we go down the list and all these names, especially the bats, they're just so young. What, what do you really have and what do you not? And so to watch Scott's service and the rest of that staff, merge these guys along, get them in positions to succeed, the further knowing when to move guys up and down, and that's an important part of some, a player's development. Sometimes they need to go back down and get less at pressure at bats to really work on the things they need to, to improve. You know, a lot of people with the Kelnick situation, you know, they could have pulled that... Sure, maybe two weeks earlier. Sure, um, I don't think one way or the other that hurt. But for him to be like, "Oh, see, look, you know, another top prospect, and he's totally garbage." They lied to us again. Man, lied to us. Right. This guy—he can't hit it. He could hit the black side of the bar if I helped him.
0: Yeah, like, he's you know, the he next Dustin Ackley. Yeah,
1: ninety-two at So let's slow that a little bit. I'm not saying that he doesn't have best potential. Every player in all of baseball has best potential. They all do. However, you know, you look at. What he has done throughout his minor league career, and you see the makeup and the mentality he has, and all the professionals that have graded him out <laughs> over the years, and hey, you know what? When he's ready to come back up, I think you see a different tonic. It might not be, you know, batting 350 with 35 dingers, but yeah. you're
0: going to see a different
1: kid. He's going to mature. He's going to get better at his craft. Um, and quite frankly, I mean, to have some of the setbacks, they did. I mean, Sheffield, in no doubt, I mean, he's regressed. Yeah. Uh, one of the young pitchers, we were like, oh, it looked like last year he had turned the corner possibly. He was, he was going to be that number three guy, you know, that he was going to really help push forward our rotation. To see that's not so true, uh, you know, that, that was unexpected. Um, perhaps, I I didn't see him coming in, and I think right now he's got what a 4.1 ERA, but for a long time there he had a sub-4 ERA. Um, I didn't see that, you know, basically a reclamation project from the K-League. I mean, yeah. So,
0: so you you touched on a couple of things there. Let, let's talk. Let's talk about the negative first from the first half. Is is Sheffield your biggest disappointment? Uh, yeah. I, I don't want to give
1: that a tie between Sheffield and uh, Evan White. Now I know why I ended up with an injury. Yeah. But this was kind of the year I was expecting to see something out of him as far as a step forward. Again, if he ended up at the end of the year hitting two fifty five, two sixty, that would have been a step forward. So it's not like I expected Evan White to hit, you know, three hundred for us. Yeah. But I think it's between him and him and Sheffield for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's um Evan White clearly was a disappointment before he got hurt, but it it almost you can almost make a positive out of this. This in, in years past, when, when we would track top prospects for the Mariners, there were so few of them to track, and w- and, and it put more pressure on them to succeed. When you talk about the, the uh, Montero, Smoke, Ackley era, that was basically it in the system. And so those three guys had to become stars because there was nothing else. You look at this team's winning, challenging for a wild card, a lot of good things happening, and they're doing it without – Evan White, who's been out now for six weeks and before that wasn't producing. They're doing it without any real production from Sheffield. They're doing it without Justin Dunn, who unfortunately had really turned a corner and I thought had kind of replaced Sheffield as, as the next best intriguing young arm, who I really didn't think long-term was going to be a starter, but sure was looking the part before he came down with, with a little shoulder fatigue. Yeah. So, you, you know, it, it just goes to show you. And then it comes up and doesn't hit. So you look at the, some of the young guys that are producing, and, and Logan Gilbert, after a couple of shaky starts, has looked really solid, gets better with every start. You can see the stuff. You can see the upside. It, it just goes to show you how, how valuable depth is. Uh, Taylor Chamel's is another guy. He's shown flashes, but he's sitting 160, 170. We don't, there isn't the pressure for these kids to come up and destroy right out of the bat. Because we got a little spoiled last year by Kyle Lewis, uh, or, or the year before, I guess, when he came up at the end of nineteen and uh, hit all those homers. So when Kelnick comes up and he has the great game, his second game out, two doubles and a home run, we think, oh, here, here we go. And then he goes, then he goes zero for forty. Yeah. So they're really doing this without a lot of production out of their top prospects, and and with a lot of injuries and a lot of. Uh, and a couple of key disappointing performances. So what is it? How have they won 45 games? What is it about this team?
1: Well, I think that, you know, a lot of people are going to point to, you know, our run differential. You know, it's not sustainable. I mean, you talk about the Sabermetrics guys, right? Not sustainable on setting up. If go back, and uh, this is one of the few times I used uh, ESPN – they do all the standings. They go back all the way to one There's five more on there, but just what I was looking at. There's one team that keeps popping up with around 500 records or a little bit better than 500 records with negative one uh, scoring differential. And it's the Seattle Mariners. Part of it has to do with our ballpark. Part of it also has to do with the way teams are assembled. I do love Sabermetrics. You're much better at Sabermetrics than I am and Leon a lot more. But I also don't like people that completely just buy into them. And you cannot argue with them because if the number says this, well, the one thing no one can measure, or else everyone would nail every draft in every sport and every player would be an all-star, is the human factor. You cannot quantify human factor. This team has shown that it will fight and scrap all the way to the end. Um, And how many come from behind victories we have, I think we're 18-6 and in one-run games. We're 9-1 in extra innings, or are 10-1 now in extra inning games. So there is the human factor along with some of the ballpark factors that help us. And that's why, if you remember, when DePaulo first got here, he said, we will have the most athletic outfield. She identified that right off the bat. If we can cut down on people scoring on us because our outfield is uber-athletic and can turn doubles into singles or catch the ball that would have looped in, et cetera, we are going to be more successful because we have such a spacious ballpark. Um so I think when you factor in what everyone is saying and, and well, all the different machinations they can think of of how this is going to blow up, I'm not buying it. You can't continually do this as an organization. You can't continually do this over 86 games in one particular season. And then all of a sudden everything gets, okay, yep, all the numbers come up to you guys. Yeah. Now we need to go six for 30 in one-run games after this. I don't buy it. Um, this team has a real belief in itself. This manager's done a great job. The whole coaching staff done a great job instilling that in these guys and giving them the opportunity to really play through it and show them that they, they belong there. They were in their spot. So, you know, yeah, we've had, I mean, like every big league club, we've had some unfortunate injuries. We've had some players not develop. You know, some of our top prospects aren't quite there. But then some of those guys that were kind of just add-ons, Jake Fraley, hitting 270. Well, guess what? That takes a lot of pressure off Trammell or Louis V. Hurt
0: or talent
1: coming off. I mean, Ty France, Luis Terrenzi, you know, or even Jake Bowers. If you look at Jake Bowers' average since coming to the Mariners, yeah. I think he's hitting like 250 something, 260 ish, 270 something. Yeah, so really yeah, solid. Really 210, but that's not what he's done for the last three weeks since he's been a Mariner. So yeah. it, these guys have found a way to make it work. And then obviously you can't take away what that bullpen did for such an extended period of time. And even though, yes, that has regressed slightly, it's still a very good bullpen. They don't give up a lot of runs once they hit the seventh, eighth, the ninth inning.
0: Right. You know, I'm glad, I'm glad you talked about the job the manager and the coaching staff has done. So I want to wait until the end basically to talk about the general manager, but it's, it, it just baffles me how people can look at what's happening with the Mariners, and and it's not just this year. And I'm going to touch on that in a second. And not give some credit to the manager. Everybody loves to bash on a guy for bullpen decisions, right? Sure. For uh, oh he's terrible. You know they should have. You know he'll bring a guy in. That guy gives up a base hit to score a run. Oh he shouldn't have done that. You know the the hindsight guys. Or and and I get it. It's not perfect. You know, he, he's, he's stuck with Rafael Montero a little too long in key moments. Um, hopefully the sign that he brought him in to mop up last night in a blowout was a sign that maybe he's not going to pitch in those high-leverage situations anymore. But part of that is loyalty to a veteran player, and part of that is what makes Scott Service an effective manager and why guys like playing for him why that clubhouse is so healthy. And here's the thing. I tried to find out because I was reading a story about – this year and you you gave the stats all the one run victories and all the extra inning victories. And I tried to find his career record since 2016 in those. And I couldn't, but I did find I did find a story from 2018 when he signed his contract extension. And at that time Jerry DePoto made specific mention of the fact that he was the Mariners were eighty-two and fifty-seven in one run games under Scott Service. And now we're seeing that it's, it's happening again this year. That's not a fluke. That's a track record. That's, that's substantial data. And, and the only conclusion can be that most of those decisions that are made in tight ball games are working out and that the players are executing the way the coaches want them to and that players are motivated and, and like playing together and that that's a good clubhouse situation. It, you can't – there's no perfect managers in baseball. There's maybe three or four that are considered elite. They're essentially interchangeable, even with the good teams. You have to give Scott Service credit for some of the good things we've seen on the field with the Mariners. And and I don't really understand the criticism. I just, I I don't. Well,
1: I think a lot of times, too, with, especially the Mariners side of the fan base up in Seattle, what I've also noticed is, you know, they are, you know, fair-weather fans, which is fine. You know, we as sports fans deal with people who take it as seriously as us or not as serious as us, and that's fine. Whatever, you know, your interest level is your interest level. But they speak so definitively. I think that's what annoys me. Like, they actually know better. Like, oh, yeah, first mm-hmm. worst baseball manager of all time. Mm-hmm. And you're really, like, you, you're really going to say that, and yet you couldn't even name our starting lineup. But you're going to say that, and I actually blame a lot of it on the press that is up in Seattle because I feel like, especially over the last 10 years that, you know, because I've been here 15 years now, the last 10 years i rely relied more and more on the Internet to get my news from Seattle and keep up with my teens and everything, and I've gotten away from the national stuff. I want to go back to the local stuff because I yeah. feel the connection there with Same. my teams. yeah. But I started to notice these articles from a national guy, from a local guy, started to look real similar to me. It's like the the free thought or the the challenging of the norm of what to write and and how to write it up. It just seemed like it wasn't there anymore. And maybe that's we were spoiled with when we came up in the Seattle sports scene and all the great writers we had and how much passion they had for it. I almost wondered, do we have a bunch of, People that got hired from out of town—that yeah, it's my job, but I don't really care. Um, And so I think they then see that, you know, on the front page or when they go on their phone, you know, commuting to work and they see some snappy headline, then they're going to go ahead and you know skew off whatever they say. I mean, I don't think there's anyone that's a passionate baseball fan that can't say right now, having Kikuchi as the only representative for the Mariners in the All-Star game is a is a tragedy. It is a crime. I have two relievers right now, right now on the Zone. When you look at the rest of that bullpen that they assembled for the All-Star Game, you would just be like, how? How are our guys not literally in those positions? Yeah. And it comes down to, I know, the whole fan voting this, that and the other. But again, how many of our fans are educated to realize a manager didn't pick that squad? That was all, you know, people getting on the internet and casting their votes and yeah. all that good stuff. So the negativity I don't get, and I don't, I don't think it's warranted, especially in services case. Uh, Like you said, there is no perfect manager. I know that I even voiced some of the complaints I have about him as a manager in the past on the show. Um, but to say that that is means he's not a good manager is a completely different story. He is a very good baseball man. And quite frankly, he might be the best baseball manager for the Mariners right now from the 2016 through
0: this season
1: process. And probably that is true for another
0: two to three years. Yeah, I think uh, for those who don't know, is his he he had never managed on the field before uh, until Depoto hired him and brought him up here. His experience was in player development and and running farm systems and and um, with the Angels and with the, with the Rangers, I think. And 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 I think that mentality, that patience with young players, and that ability to teach, is mm-hmm. is something that they need in the clubhouse right now. I'm glad you brought up run differential because. I took some time to to look into this because I had a, I had a hunch. I kept hearing about run differential, and it really pissed me off because in my head I could remember specifically three or four games where the Mariners got blown out. And, and in particular during that time when they were dealing with some injuries, before they called Gilbert up, they were shy in the rotation. They were running a lot of bullpen days out there. And then they had the COVID issue strike their – their bullpen, and, and they were terrible for about a month. And I thought, I I wonder if I look back, if, I, if I'd be able to find that most of that run differential happened in a handful of games and therefore isn't as statistically relevant. And I was right. <laughs> so I found seven games within about a three-week stretch during that time I'm talking about where they lost... Ten to two to the Rangers, seven to one to the Dodgers. That sixteen to one loss to the Padres when Flexen got hammered in the first in the first inning. He just didn't have it. Um, and and really, if you take that one game, Flexen's ERA right now is three point eight. If you take that game out, it's like three point four. And then they lost uh, a couple days later, nine to two. And then back to back nights to the A's, they lost twelve to six and six to nothing. And then they, there's a twelve to five loss to the Angels. There's seven games where they have a negative fifty five run differential, and overall it's negative fifty three. So what it means is they're not they're not deep enough to avoid blowouts and it's going to happen sometimes and they were they were going through a period where they were shorthanded it's i think in this case i think it's a worthless stat because once you once you get up to that even mark even there's some teams that are negative 10 negative 11 that are leading their division in playoff hunts good baseball teams i think the yankees are minus 1 or minus 2 right in there or plus 2 that we're playing right now they it's not that different so, I I don't want to hear run differential again the rest of the season. Um, let's talk about some positives. Who who have been your most pleasant surprises this offseason? I know you've touched on a couple of them already, but let's get into it.
1: Kikuchi and Flexen, obviously. You know we've been waiting on Kikuchi for you know year three now of, of what what were we getting finally? And it showed up. It showed up in a big way this year. Um, Flexen simply because of, again reclamation. Project from the K League, so you didn't you didn't really have an idea, um, and he's he's done well and he's been very consistent out, outside of one fire with the Padres. We just touched on yeah. Um, I was happy to see Ty France bounce back after his struggles. You know, I know he's still only in the mid two sixties, but when you saw how quickly things went bad for him and then work his butt off and now turn it back around and things and incrementally get better. That's a positive sign for me. I really like seeing that. Fraley, wow. I mean, he started off the season looking just like all the other young guys. I mean, wasn't his batting average somewhere around 170? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and he
0: couldn't stay healthy. Yeah. and Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, and then J.P. Crawford. I mean, we all felt real good about his defense, everything else. But then we also saw why they were so quick to give him up. Oh, boy, he just doesn't have the bat. The bat just isn't there. And that's what we had talked about for two years, just no bat, no bat, no bat. And what this kid is putting together for a season right now, and again, I mentioned too about relievers. I want to know how J.P. Cropper's not on my all-star team. I mean, that's, that's crazy to me.
0: Yeah, certainly the numbers warrant it. It's a stacked position. I think he just got caught up in that, and and maybe maybe there's still some doubt as to whether it's it's sustainable or legitimate. I, there's no none of that doubt with me, and I'm with you. To me, that's to me hands down. Crawford is is not just the most pleasant surprise, but the most shocking development of the season. I think at the beginning of the season, we were all having a discussion, and it was a legitimate one of. Is he is he our shortstop in 2022? Is that a position you go look to upgrade? Is he the long term answer? Um even even the first month of the season, when he was getting on base, it, it seemed lucky. He wasn't barreling the ball, he wasn't he wasn't really hitting all fields. Uh and then and then something clicked. And now it's been six weeks, two months, and it, it's gotten to the point for me where it looks like it's not a fluke, and that he found something, and he talks openly about it. He found something that he he's latched onto and he believes in and he brings to his approach every single day. I saw one of those 3D spray charts the other day during the telecast of the game, and you'd be hard-pressed to find another major leaguer who had one as impressive. He, It's cliche, but he literally hits the ball where it's pitched, he hits to all fields. You can't use the shift against him. He's not trying to hit home runs. He's just he's just making good contact. He's in yeah. that way in this day and age in today's major league baseball, he's kind of a throwback. And he's made himself a very valuable part of this of this movement heading forward and and I think that's a box that you can check off that you don't have to worry about shortstop for the next few years since June 1st just to put this into perspective he's hitting 286 overall, 5 home runs, 31 RBIs since June 1st 353 and he leads the majors with 44 hits over that span um, and he and then he continues to play as a reigning gold glove champion at shortstop continue I think he leads I saw yesterday he leads the major league baseball in 9 defensive runs saved um I don't know that he's ever going to be an MVP candidate or a superstar, but he's made himself a very important, reliable piece of this team. And hitting at the top of that lineup, you have to give him a lot of credit for what's happening with the team the last six weeks, the six weeks as well. I, I think it's the most important development that we've seen this entire season.
1: Yeah, I think that you're right. I think that especially when you consider not only his defensive position, but where he bats in the order – it adds that much more importance to it all. Like you said, I mean, now these guys have to be pitched to a little bit differently. You've got a guy on base who can swipe bags. Uh, I mean, you look at all the extra base hits. I mean, he hit was, uh, I think I saw he was top eight in doubles right now, I think Crawford is. So it's not like he's just, you know, getting by a pitch and walking up to first and hoping to come around to score. Like, you know, this guy's actually getting on base, yeah, swiping uh, bags, hitting doubles. So he's put himself in scoring position. And that makes it easier for the guys behind them, you know. Uh, so yeah, I agree with you. I think that is probably the most unexpected, but the most important development we've seen.
0: And, sure. and you mentioned Kikuchi. Um, I think it's become a no-brainer at this point that they exercise that that series of four one-year options. Um, I, th- I think it brings them in at it's it's either fourteen and a half or sixteen and a half million a year. Um, yeah. Bargain, whatever it is. Yeah, for for a solid number two or a mid rotation guy, even that goes out and gives you a chance every day. And and what I like about what he's doing is is he brings an energy when he comes out to the mound and and a and a fire and a competitiveness that you can see. I think that's I think that's infectious and contagious. And and I think I don't know that he'll ever be a legitimate number one or an ace that we'll ever be talking about him on a Madison Baumgartner level or a Max Scherzer level or a Clayton Kershaw level, but he's, he's darn close. He's closer than that to anything the Mariners have had in a very long time, um, and, he, and he's not old. That's the thing. When people talk about, and I've seen some of this, I don't know, $16.5 million, maybe they should trade him, get value for that. That's a lot of money. Not for a guy who's not 30 and doing what he's doing, uh, yeah. you you got to lock that guy up.
1: You have to. I mean, if they looked at any of the contracts that went down this last offseason, you had guys that are not Kikuchi-level getting, what, 22 to 25 mil a year? Yeah. I and mean, he's, he's going to be a steal. Even if it's 16 and a half, he's a steal. You lock him up. You lock up those four years, and you, you, put, to, you put to rest any thoughts of, you know, having a number two pitcher out there because he's got the spot nailed down. You know, and if he does does make his way to being our ace, great. I don't even need to know, I don't think you even need to worry about that so much, especially the way they're putting this team together and this rotation. You know, a lot of the old school stuff is starting to disappear. And I think the true vision of an ace, unless you specifically have that guy in your building, it's really faded. You don't have 30 aces anymore in the major leagues. Yeah. You know, you you have maybe 10 you know, across the entire league that you can call true ace.
0: Yeah.
1: So, you know, and I, I, I like what you said about his mentality too, because I think it is infectious. And I like, because that's the same way Logan Gilbert walks out to the mound. Yeah. Every time I look at Logan Gilbert walking out to the mound or walking off, he reminds me of Randy Johnson. Not specifically in the way he throws, but in that, just in his demeanor and his mentality. Mm-hmm. Like, I want to strike you out. And if I don't strike you out, I want to hit you with the ball so hard, you don't ever want to get in the batter's box again. <laughs> That's what
0: his face says to be every time. Yeah, You know? I was wrong about Kikuchi. He turned 30 a few weeks ago, but still. Usually by the time top of the rotation starters get to free agency, they're 31, 32, sometimes older, and they're going to cost you a lot more than that in the open market. Um Yeah, and the Mariners only have, when you don't count Kikuchi's option, 22 million committed for next year it's just it's a flat out no-brainer um one of my you talked about Flexin. i he's so chris Flexen is one of those guys that i don't think will ever be an all-star but he kind of reminds me to to pull from 20 years ago he reminds me of brian holman before brian holman got hurt yeah. A guy who's just really steady, goes about his business, real professional, uh, real analytical about how he approaches things, has all the pitches, um, you know figures things out as he goes along. You'll see him struggle with a pitch during a start, so he'll go to his secondaries and kind of find a different approach. Um, he just seems like one of those like the ultimate number three starter that you can just you run him out there every fifth or sixth day. you know what you're going to get from him. You're going to win more often than not when he's on the mound. He's going to keep you in games and save your bullpen. Um, he's been a lot of fun. Two, two of my surprises, pleasant surprises, I don't know that it's a surprise, but the first one is Mitch Haniger staying healthy. It, it's He never really had issues with injuries until two years ago, but then the ones that he did have over the last two years were so significant. You had to wonder, I know we talked about it on the preseason show, Is this a guy who's played too hard, run himself too hard, you know, been too hard on his body and he's breaking down? Um, It's not just the fact he's been out there every day and the Mariners have done a good job of managing his workload, but that he is who we thought he was when he's healthy. And kind of like I talked about with Chris Flexen, never going to win an MVP. Could have made an argument for the All-Star game this year with 18 home runs, 19 home runs. Um, but in a crowded outfield, but a guy that you run out there every day, you know exactly what you're going to get. He's going to come through in big moments. He's going to be consistent, and and he goes about his business every day. Um, And then here's my other one, and I don't know how you categorize this. Maybe it's I'm pleasantly surprised at how Jerry Depoto makes this happen because he's done it time and time again. We saw it two years ago with Austin Adams and Brandon Brennan and some of the other guys the way they they find relief pitchers that nobody wants, that are designated for assignment or released outright or who are free agents because they see something in them or in their arsenal that if they tweak and change their approach, they can get the most out of them. And when all that stuff was happening with the bullpen and the Casey Sadler was going down and Eric Swanson went down and then Kendall Graveman got COVID and, <laughs> you turn to guys like J.T. Chargois, mm-hmm. uh, Steckenrider, and Seawald—castoffs, just rejects, nobodies. I think Chargois was uh, a minor league deal with an invite to spring training. I think Seawald might have been the same thing. Steckenrider, I think, was claimed off waivers. They have a combined whip this year; those three of one in 76 innings pitch, That trio has only walked 26. They've struck out 94. They have become the anchor to that bullpen leading up to Graveman who's who's kind of gotten his his stuff back, it seems like, since he since he left. It's just it's astonishing that the bullpen is as good as it is when you look at the names that are actually coming through and producing.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that that's something that you've seen year after year with what the has done is we've always seen to do it like you brought up. I don't know if it's just something they saw in player development where they're like, hey, look, you'll grab us, boom, 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 boom. We know exactly what we need to fix. Or if they just utilize them differently. Maybe they're looking at a guy going, well, why don't they have a guy in this situation? or Why don't they have him throw more of this pitch? You know, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but you're right. They've done a fabulous job. I mean, you can't knock them.
0: To me, the poster child for this is Seawald. I mean, the guy's a kind of a journeyman, older pitcher, uh, had mostly been a starter. And and they bring him to Seattle, and they say, you know, you, th- you hit 94 at times. You sit 92, 93. Your fastball is a major league fastball, but it, there's nothing dynamic about it. But your slider is fantastic. Just throw your slider all the time, and we'll bring you out of the bullpen. And and uh, it, it reminds me of Jeff Nelson's slider. Like, it has so much plane and break to it. And uh, I think he's thrown it, like, 45% of the time, maybe more. And he's he's become – Outside of Graveman, maybe their most their biggest weapon out of the bullpen. Because going into the season, what we thought the bullpen was going to be Montero, Middleton, and Graveman. Montero's been horrible. You could make a case that he should be DFA'd. Mid- Middleton's been mostly good. They sent him down a little bit to put some things together. He dominated at AAA, and then they haven't quite worked him back into the into the mix for some reason. Uh, but those three guys maybe are the MVPs of the season so far. I mean, you
1: can definitely make the argument that if they could share it, that that would be my vote. Just give it to all three of them.
0: There you go. Uh, let's talk about the second half and what we expect. Um, what, are, what are a couple of key things that you're looking for, either from an individual standpoint or, or the team as a whole, um, not, not related to trades? We'll talk about the trade deadline in just a minute. Just some, some performance things that you're looking for in the second half. I
1: mean, obviously, on the performance side, uh, the young guys continue their development. You know, you don't want to see J.B. Crawford fall off a cliff or Fraley or France. You know, so continue to see that development is what I'm looking forward to that they put together over the course of the whole season. Uh, not to say there's not peaks and valleys in there. It's baseball. There's peaks and valleys. Um, obviously, Logan Gilbert, Cicucci, uh Flexen. Uh, I want to see that their development and their, their well, not development on Kikuchi, but their performance uh, is also staying on the same trajectory it is now. Um, and then I'd say overall for the team, again, I, I still go with if they're a 500 ball club at the end of the season, yeah. I think that's a huge major step as a organizational step forward in this rebuild process. So if we're within five games, South of 500 or five games north of 500, you know, right now, I think that's going to be huge for us. Um, I do not expect this to be a wild-card team. Um, I think putting that sort of pressure on these guys at this point would also be a little detrimental to them. Um, There's a lot of things that can go wrong in a baseball season. Um, We've seen a lot of them already. So the fact that we are where we are is very impressive. But I also don't want to buy into that, oh, really, all of a sudden, we're going to rip off a 20-game win streak like the A's did back in whatever and, yeah. and really being famous. Uh, so, but yeah, if we can finish around 500. I mean, that's, that's really what I'm looking forward to. I, you know, I don't want to get caught up in the moment that, yes, you are playing better than expected, but I want to keep my expectations where they were. Let's try to really hit that 500 mark at the end of the season. Uh, a lot these guys to continue to take steps forward, which obviously not all of them can. But this is why you have to find out. This is is the time to find out, you know, who's there and who's not. You know, I'm not sure how many of the young guys are ready to come up. You know, a lot of pitching prospects. I mean, is this really the time to bring them up at the end of the year? I don't know.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, But, I mean, that's all stuff that we have to look forward to. I mean, we've got four legit pitching prospects down there that sometime in the next 18 months probably are going to see the big leagues. Yeah. uh, Without any major setbacks, you know, injury-wise.
0: So, no yeah, I think you and I are definitely on the same page on this, and and, and I think, um, and and I think based on his comments, it's where Jerry Depoto is too. It's just to me, people talk about, and I've talked about it before. The hardest part of a rebuild is when you're ready to get over that hump, making those key moves to acquire veterans, and 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 those have to those have to work. You can't miss on those. I think this is the hardest part of a rebuild because. They're playing better than people expected. And so now that people can get back in the stadium, they're getting excited again. There was a big extra inning win the other night, and they had you know 12,000 people in the stands. It sounded like 40,000. Everybody's excited to watch baseball again, and this team's fun to watch. And so people want to fast forward, and they want to jump ahead, and they want to add now, and they want to compete now. Trade for this guy, trade for that guy. It's... To sell out to do that to me is irresponsible and I think you have to stick with the idea that we're still not quite ready to do that yet because there's still a gap to me the biggest problem with this team going into the second half is depth of starting pitching they're they're, they've been going with a five man rotation for the last couple weeks because they've had enough off days so when they get into the 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 dog days of the second half are they going to stick with a five-man rotation? If they do, they're going to want to limit Gilbert's innings. They're going to want to limit his workload this year. It's his first year in the major leagues. So are they going to go with an opener? If they want to go back to a six-man rotation, who the hell's the six-man? If Justin Dunn comes back and he's healthy, that would help, but they don't have that depth. I mean, usually you have a couple of veteran journeyman starters in AAA who might be able to come up and give you some decent starts, like a Tommy Malone a few years ago. For a, They don't have that right now. Their Tacoma rotation is a mess, and it's just a bunch of scrubs. They, their all that pitching depth and those top prospects we talk about are in high A. The Everett, the Everett rotation's loaded. Brandon Williamson just got the promotion uh, to Double A. So did uh, and Ian McKinney recently got promoted to Triple A, but he's not one of those top guys. And Williamson's not going to be ready for a while next year. If they were running into an injury issue like they are now, you the question would be. Well, let's, let's call up George Kirby. Let's call no. up Emerson Hancock, right? Let's call up Brandon Williamson. They don't have that luxury right now. and so and, and you can't go out and get it. No one's trading controllable, good starting pitching right now. And so you have to be realistic and understand that they might be able to make a couple little minor moves. You know, the Jake Bowers type move or just find a guy that's expendable with another team that can help you. I like the idea of... Uh, there's a lot of talk about getting Nelson Cruz on a rental and trading for him to come in and DH for you the second half of the year, bringing him back to Seattle wouldn't cost you much. Those types of moves I don't mind. But there's a lot of sentiment out there to sell out and go for it, and I don't think it's possible.
1: Well, I think that sentiment leads you back to what the mayor's historically have been as an organization. You know, when you go back to, you know, the late nineties when we you know, mid to late nineties when we became relevant, you know. What do we do? We always went out and got these big free agents. We always gave our farm system. I mean it, it was just a pattern over and over again. It didn't yeah. matter the name we put out there. You know, it didn't matter if it was Gillick or Bavese or I mean put out any name you want out there. They all did it. And they all did it to some degree. You know, some like Gillick, I mean that's just who he was. I mean everyone knew that coming in town. Right. Gillette prospects is nothing other than collateral to go get major league players. Um well, that's why DePoto was given this job, and that's why DePoto was given his mandate, was to break that cycle. Well, you don't break the cycle because you have one decent first half that's better than expected, and so now we're going to take, what, what were we rated, number three farm system? two number Two, two and hours, one, yeah. Right? And we're going to destroy that. For what? Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to get what you think out of it. And honestly nothing that we have on the roster currently is not in the same or better position next year outside of Kyle Seager that's it the only only real player you're talking about that might not be a part of this next year or the year after is Kyle Seager that's it now anyone else that wouldn't be a part of it we would have had to have shopped you know it's Hanager okay we shopped him you know if it was Kikuchi for some stupid reason we shopped him but you're only talking about Kyle Seeger, who, by the way, I love the death, but yeah. it's time for Kyle to retire. Yeah. K- Kyle's garbage now. He's not an everyday third baseman. He's doing us no favors. Maybe he's great for the developmental side, and that's why they keep him in the clubhouse and run him out there every day. Right? I have no problem being loyal to him because we're not challenging for any playoff spots. Let him play out the year. But stick to the Polo's plan. Yeah. We've got a great farm system. It is now getting to the point where it's going to start to produce the fruit. Let's see what type of fruit we're going to produce. And you're going to have to give that, that and again, that's going to be a two- to three-year process. You're know, you you're not going to know right off the bat. I mean, Kirby might be at the show a year and a half before everyone else. He might be the last guy. He might not show up at all. Yeah. He might be Danny Holt, right? Catch an arm injury and never see him again. Yeah. So let's see what's happening. Let's see who, who produces. Let's see who moves up. And then at that point, and this is probably, in my mind, 2023. Okay, maybe in 2023. You know, the offseason you know, off leading into 2023. Okay, you want to go sign a free agent or two that will really take the team over the top or maybe consider trading for someone that could really take it over the top. That seems appropriate to me. But even, even after the end of this year, going into 2022, I would still be very hesitant Yeah. for them to just start you know, going out and shopping our, our assets. Yeah,
0: I'd be really nervous. Yeah, unless someone blows <laughs> blows us away. I, you know, we we haven't talked about it specifically, but I think we've both given our answer away on this one. Um, I'm I'm firmly on the side now of you don't trade Mitch Haniger because he can be. I do think there's a chance you could be a contending team in 2022 with a good off season and a couple of these young guys developing over the next year. And if you do, I think Haniger can help you do that. I I don't think at this point, even with a year and a half of control left that that you're going to get enough to make it worthwhile because whatever any other team is offering, and this is how good the Mariner's system is now, we already have it. You want you want to offer a, a really good 21-year-old high A starting pitcher who projects as a mid-rotation guy? That might seem like good value for Mitch Haniger. All right, we already have five or six of those. You wanna yeah. you know, maybe if someone offered a middle infield guy, a second baseman, a guy that could play third long term, who they think is a bona fide major leaguer, uh, and is on the cusp of being a major league. Maybe, maybe that could sway you. But you need guys like Mitch Haniger to to make the transition and get back to winning again, and and to have a veteran in the clubhouse. So, so I I hang on to him. And 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 I'm okay if they hang on to him through next year, hoping that he can help them win. And and he ends up walking away as a free agent and they get nothing in return for him. The value of having him for the next year and a half, I think, is more than that. Um, and, and then with what you're saying about development of the kids, I think what I've got my eye on the second half, other than some of the things you touched on, I haven't even talked about Jake Fraley yet. Cause I let cause, cause you did such a great job, but he's, he's so much fun to watch and he's becoming the player that we hoped he would be when he came over for the first time. He just injects a lot of energy in that team and plays real hard nosed and, and he, he's becoming what I hoped Ben Gamble was going to be for us. Um, but with more power. But Kelnick's going to come up again, probably very soon. Since his demotion, he's hitting 305 uh, with an OPS over 1,000, seven home runs. His K rate is only 14%. He's walking almost as much as he strikes out. He's been especially hot the last two weeks, hitting the ball to all fields again. I think he'll be up shortly after the All-Star break. I saw speculation this morning they could call him up for the next road trip when they go to Coors Field, uh, hitter-friendly park. Um how does he do? Does he settle in? Does he relax more this time and start to produce? And then it's only a matter of time before we see Cal Raleigh. I, I think it's gotten to the point where hes you've seen everything that you need to see from him in AAA. He's hitting 322 with power, he's striking out 13% of the time, like for a switch hitting, power hitting catcher. That's a ridiculously low strikeout rate. Um, He's he's his defensive skills. I think have developed to the point that there's no question he can be an everyday catcher back there. Um, you know we don't have to worry about. We could have talked about Tom Murphy as one of our disappointments this year. We don't have to worry about taking at bats away from a guy like that. Even though Terenz has been hitting uh, with power lately, those two guys in the second half for me are are the key to that next wave of prospects. And let's see how they develop because uh, that'll that'll go in. in, in A long way towards determining, I think, what they do in the offseason as far as um, pursuing free agents, which I I think they will do. I do. Which leads me to this. Let's talk about the general manager. There is a massive. uh, It's not the majority, but it's a very vocal minority and it's not a small minority. It might be a third of Mariner fans out there. And I'm thinking of one guy in particular who's a very popular podcast host out there who I follow on Twitter and he's always tweeting about mariner opinions and his opinion is so strongly rooted in the fact that Jerry Depoto is a terrible general manager, should be fired yesterday, and that anyone that supports him is uh well I, I want to keep it I want to keep my language family oriented but it is is so in love with DePoto that that they can't see the truth. Um, There's a lot of that sentiment out there, though. Um, I do think, as you touched on, it's some of the older, burned-out, cynical Mariner fans who just assume that if if you have the general manager of the Mariner's plaque on your office door that you're probably an idiot. Uh, His contract is up at the end of this year. He's due for an extension. There's some question as to why we haven't seen that extension yet. How do you view the job he's done, and whether or not he deserves another long-term extension with the Mariners?
1: Uh, well, I think he's done a great job. Honestly, I think he had, has deserves another extension. You know, probably in the range of four or five years. You know, type of extension for sure. Um, and I would just challenge all those people that hold the opinion that he's just terrible at his job or. The worst ever. I, I challenged him with, show me the evidence of where he's failed us. You know, he came into a situation where, quite frankly, we were bloated with contracts. I mean, bloated. I mean, did everyone forget uh, when Robinson Cannell and company were in town, how much money was on our books and in very few players? I mean, I think there was five players that ate up something like 85% of our payroll at one point. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, we were, if not last place, dead last. Uh, as far as farm systems, we had no no assets down there at all. Um, and that was by everyone's measure, not by the objective. I'm talking about everyone out there. We were definitely the bottom three for farm systems for probably five, six years. Yeah, I mean, it was a long time. We had nothing. Now you fast forward to a team that out on the field, at least as of today, has a winning record, has young players that are developing, and you can see the actual development happen in front of you. It's, it's tangible. It's not speculative. It's tangible. Yeah. You've got a top three farm system so that when you are ready to make some moves, when you feel like your team's there and you're only a piece or two away, and you've got to go make the move to get that special player or two to take you over the top, you can actually go do it. If this was Bill DeVasey's team and we had the same conversation right now, the only difference is we'd have no one down in the farm system, and you couldn't trade for anyone right now. Yep. You'd be like, yeah,
0: I hope we like it. Yay! Yeah. Like,
1: so I don't see how people can look at the tangible <laughs> work of the product on the field, the player development, and then the assets to go make this team better quickly if you chose to do so, and not say the man has not done a great job. Because we had none of those three things prior to him, none. Yeah, I mean, one year we won eighty six games, next year we won sixty two. Yeah. So it's not like we were a perennial ninety five win team that was always getting to the ALCS. Like, I mean, what, am I missing something that they are all key to that I just don't know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I again, I, I think a lot of it just comes from that's how Mariners think or Mariners fans think about the Mariners. I. I when I see the criticism, I I see really ridiculous reasons for it. Some people will cherry pick the trades they don't like, like Chris Taylor, Freddie Peralta. It it's I think if we broke down every trade Jerry DePoto's ever made, his winning percentage far exceeds most of the general managers that baseball fans would would think are good ones. Um, yeah. And then there's also this question of. Um, I think a lot of it comes from this last off season. I think people are unfairly blaming Jerry Depoto that they didn't go out and sign a couple of key veteran free agents to help this team go to the next level when they don't understand that that wasn't his doing that at the if you remember at the end of last season he came out and specifically said and I, I've said on this show that I thought this was a mistake at the time that it was too soon he specifically said, I think this team can be a playoff contender next year. And the reason he said that is because at the time he was led to believe or told explicitly by ownership he was going to be able to spend in the offseason. Not crazy, yeah. but he was going to be able to be fairly aggressive in going out and getting some sub- substantial veteran pieces to add to the roster. And then we all know what happened. Uh, Ken Mather got to John Stanton and convinced him that because of the finances uh, coming out of the pandemic and everything else that they should hold off. Stanton's just as much to blame for that as Mather because he should have, as, as the, the owner and CEO of that organization, he should have known better and, and trusted his general manager more because Mather wasn't a baseball guy. We've, we've gone over that. So not DePoto's fault. He tried to add some decent pieces. He, he really tried to add Colton Wong, but ultimately the bidding got a little too high. He would have been a fantastic in the middle of this order. He's having a great year. Um, and and he, tried to add, he looked into some other things as well. He came out two weeks ago, Jerry Depoto did, on his, his weekly radio show, and again, explicitly said, he was asked directly, do you expect to be aggressive in free agency this offseason in in acquiring veteran players? He said, in a word, absolutely. And then he went on to describe why he felt like the time was right for that. After everything PR-wise that this organization's had to deal with publicly over the last six to eight months— there's no way that someone as shrewd and smart as Jerry DiPoto would come out and say those things on the radio again unless he knew explicitly that he was going to, to be allowed to do that. And so that is going to happen. Now, ultimately, that's what he's going to be judged on. He's done a remarkable job. And this is another thing people lose sight of. It's not just drafting good players and improving the farm system and not trading them away. But as a general manager of a Major League Baseball team, you're in charge of the entire minor league organization, and that means all the systems and processes that are in place. If you don't like the general manager of your baseball team because he didn't make a good trade, you can't just go swap him for a guy that you think is going to make better personnel decisions. There's an organizational philosophy that goes along with that, and you have to change the entire flow chart. Everything the Mariners do from the Major League level all the way down to – Modesto and, and the Dominican League and the Arizona League they're teaching kids the same things, they're teaching them the same way, they're instructing kids the same way and they're all on the same page as, as far as how to, how to develop talent and that's working and so maybe he isn't good at the last piece of really building a 26-man veteran Major League Baseball roster where all the pieces work together and make you a contender. We don't know that yet But there's no way in hell you can convince me he doesn't deserve the chance to prove that based on what he's done so far. Absolutely. You just can't.
1: And and I think people also forget, you know, trades, yeah, you you have a little bit more information than, I guess, drafting people. I'll give you that. But on some levels, it's still a Mm crapshoot. I mean, how many times do you see a guy just tear it up the first half? I mean, this guy's lights out. I mean, everything you need, and we're trading for him, bring him in at the last piece, and then all of a sudden, dude ain't hitting no more. Yeah, Just does not hit the way he was. Or he's not pitching the way he was. Now, all Sonny's, you know, long balls left and right. So, I mean, you know, it, it, for me, if that's the biggest knock on the so far, especially when you bring up a trade like the Chris Taylor trade, mm-hmm. does everyone forget what Chris Taylor was doing in the Mariners uniform? Nothing. Yeah,
0: not that, yeah. Dodgers.
1: Coming? Who, who the hell saw it coming? Yeah. Nobody.
0: Yeah. And Literally, and, and Freddie Peralta was an 18-year-old pitcher when they traded him. Like, the, the hit rate on those guys is, is ridiculous. Yeah. So, I mean, for people to
1: act like they know better based off one of those sorts of trades, it's completely ridiculous.
0: And you know what's I mean, funny? Like, you know what I love? What I love is nowadays, because of the, the magic of the Internet, is – the, like you take that Freddie Peralta trade to the Brewers, he's turned into a, a fantastic pitcher. Uh, he was he was one of three minor league pitchers sent to the Brewers for Adam Lind. If you go back and and Google hard enough, uh, you'll find or even even look it up on Twitter because those tweets live forever. The the overwhelming majority of Mariners fans were laughing that we killed the Brewers on that trade. That we got Adam Lynn for that, so it's it's really uh, hypocritical then to come back, you know, five years later and go, oh, they, she should he should have never traded that guy. It's
1: absolutely. I mean, look how many times in the past we traded for someone we thought
0: mm-hmm. the
1: Mar- was just. I mean, go back to Reed, Jeremy Reed. Oh man, I, I was ecstatic when the Mariners made that trade with the White Sox. I thought this kid was a center fielder for us, and and then the kid just couldn't hit when he got here. Yeah. Justin Smoke had one of the saddest marriage stories of all time, not just because of all the personal tragedy, but all the fanfare that guy came in with and then just couldn't hit the freaking ball. You know, Jesus Montero. Yeah. There was no one when we made that trade with the Yankees, there was not one person that wasn't like, oh, damn, like, oh, yeah, they just picked up the bat.
0: He was a top like, 10 prospect. Yeah. He was, a top, he was a top 10 prospect. And I remember, I think it was Jonathan Mayo on the MLB network one time where they were doing their annual top prospect show. And they got to Montero, who's still with the Yankees at that time. And he said he, he compared him to Edgar Martinez as a right handed bat. Like, like, there's no, you know, but again, that goes into my previous point that, like, there was no doubting what, how scouts felt about his ability to hit. But then he came into a poor player development program, and they didn't get the most out of him, and it ruined his career. It's um, it's it, here's a, here's an example too. I think people are too quick to to want to label a trade as a win or a loss. And I think a great example of that is the Mike Zanino trade. You know, it was the very it was the very first trade that officially kicked off the rebuild at the end of 2018. And he just was named an all-star. He has 19 home runs, I think, on the season. He really isn't that different from the player that was here. He's hitting 200, but he's a good, solid, you know, better-than-average defensive catcher. He's a great clubhouse guy. Everybody loves him, and he's got 19 bombs. So does that mean that was a bad trade because Malik Smith didn't become the leadoff hitter and the everyday outfielder we expected him to be? No. We get Jake Fraley as a little bit of a fringe benefit, a little bonus of that trade. But even if even if Fraley never becomes a, a an everyday player and Zanino goes to multiple All Star games, it doesn't mean that was a bad trade. Zanino had to go; he needed a change of scenery. It wasn't working here, and the fact that he turned out to be a great player doesn't doesn't reflect negatively on the on the general manager who traded him away. Not at all. So, general manager stuff. Since we're talking about that let's talk about let's talk about the draft a little bit let's talk about future Mariners uh, it's coming up this weekend um, I really like that they moved it back finally yeah. because it always was awkward to me uh, before that the College World Series happened after the draft yeah although it was interesting sometimes like I remember watching Dustin Ackley play in the College World Series for North Carolina uh, after we had drafted number two overall and he hit an opposite field home run and I thought well that guy's gonna be great yeah. <laughs> But from a scouting standpoint, it didn't make sense. It was just kind of dumb. So now it's later, and then the fact that they do it in conjunction with uh, the All Star Game. I think the first round's even being televised on a on a regular network. I think Fox or somebody is doing the the actual first round. Uh, sh- should bring a lot more attention to it. The Mariners have the 12th pick. Um, you know, baseball drafts. It's not like the football draft. We have tons of film on these guys, and we have a really good understanding what kind of player they are. But, but. I know you're like me, and you've looked at some of the mock drafts and where guys that are projected to go to the Mariners, and it seems to be a pretty small group, and there's enough information out there now about kind of what direction they're looking to go. So I asked you to come up with your top three guys that kind of appeal to you that you're intrigued by. Um, let's uh, Let's go one. Let's go. Well, just give me your three. Give me your three. Give it to me, because I'm sure there's going to be some overlap.
1: I mispronounced the kids now at the back, but the, uh, the uh, shortstop sure Halsey. Okay. I don't know if that's exactly the way you pronounce his name. You know, again, I watched all I could on him, and, you know, he just looks like, you know, that <clears throat> physical specimen that he have got a lot of on his frame to develop. Um, you know, <clears throat> obviously he's a prep kid, so, you know, that yeah, that makes it tough because for that position players, I mean, that's really a four to five year earliest window before you'd see them. Yeah, honestly, um, I'm not you know not like these college pitchers we've been drafting lately where they might have a one or two year window. You know, <laughs> pandemic aside. <laughs> um, so Halsey, uh, obviously the shortstop from UCLA, which we've been linked to by almost everyone, McLean, um, although. Not excited about him. Like, if that's what we're going to do, I'd rather go get another college arm, honestly, because McLean just looks like nothing to me. Like, he just – he looks like organizational fill. Hmm. Like, I, I just don't see it. You know, he, he doesn't hit. He doesn't hit for power. Uh, his defense is decent. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to have him move out shortstop even and end up as a center fielder maybe. Um, his arm's not great. So, but McClain, I guess is the other one, and then uh, I really like that. Uh, uh, what's his name? He's the the prep outfielder Walker. Oh, what's his name? Oh boy, see, I should have read, read, wrote this down. <laughs> uh, he's out of Florida. Dang it! Anyways, there's a prep outfielder. Trust me on this one. He's got great hair. Uh, <laughs> But uh, again, you know, again, you have to realize he's got a four to five year development number at the earliest. But kid just looks like a five tool player. You know, everything I read up on him, you know, he's got the arm, he's got the legs, he's got the bat. It sounds like the power part of his bat maybe isn't there, so maybe not quite a five tool or like a four plus.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, guy. But again, that's that's another one I'd like to see. Um, I'm a little more open to them doing some prep guys at this point now that we've got so much depth in our organization. Yeah. Yeah. i so scared of, of them taking some prep guys on. Um, you know, the other thing that makes it hard with the uh, Major League draft is the players of all the drafts have the most power. You know, they start telling the team, yeah, I wouldn't sign if you're not going to give me X amount of dollars yeah. over slot. I'm, I'm not signing. Right. So you can have people drop that you're like, oh my God, I never thought we'd get a chance to draft this guy. You know, that's not the way the NFL or the NBA do it. So um, the players actually have a lot more power in this situation
0: unless
1: they're a college senior and then yeah, they're screwed. But you know, if they're a high school player or if they're an underclassman, they can they
0: can opt out of the draft and go right back to school. So Yeah, that just that just made me think of something too. It'll be interesting it'll be interesting to see how this um the new rules and laws concerning uh, profiting off your name, in, image and likeness will will have it, have any effect on baseball. I, I, I don't think there's the appeal at this point uh, where there, where a lot of money is going to be thrown at these uh, baseball prospects because the viewership just isn't as big and these kids don't really become big stars. But maybe over time, once they kind of get the, the the wrinkles ironed out from how they do it with football and some of these things get get leveled out, if, if there is a kid that comes along, I'm trying to think of the kid last year who was the big power hitting first baseman, the blonde kid that uh, the. He, the year before won a bunch of home run derbies when he was like 17. So he got a big name and now I can't remember his name. So obviously that tells you that he fell off a little bit, didn't play as well as senior year. Boston got him at the end of the first round. But, but every once in a while, a guy like a Bryce Harper comes along whose name is so big that, you know, maybe these kids, if they don't get what they want because of the slot value, maybe they do go to college for a couple years if there's a chance to make some money off their name, and it, just a little side note there, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. Um, so I'll start with we have we had one name that, that was on both of our lists, and we disagree slightly on McLean. But I'll but here's my disclaimer: I had to talk myself into the fact because there is a lot of buzz around that the Mariners really would prefer a college bat in this spot. Yeah. Um, they would especially like to get some help in the middle infield because it's really the weakness of their system. Sure. McLean started the season really poorly, wasn't hitting home runs, had a wrist injury, had to have a little procedure done on the wrist. Since then, he's played really well, um, and, he, and, he, and he's gone on a power surge. I think he had seven home runs in a weekend series or something, something ridiculous like that. But you're right. He's not the kind of player that, like, is dripping with tools, although he's a 70-grade runner. He's, he's got a plus-plus runner, um, good, good bat-to-ball skills, good contact hitter, who some scouts seem to think is going to develop enough power um, that that'll be a, a, at least part of his game, 5'11", 180. He kind of reminds me of, if you remember last year, uh, we were having a lot of discussions about Nick Gonzalez, out of New Mexico State. Yeah. Similar type player, second baseman, contact hitter, but had some power, really went on a power tear tear right before the draft. Mariners passed on him at six, he went number seven right behind him. They took Emerson Hancock instead. I kinda you you started to say, and, and this is kind of how I feel if that you said if that's the if that's the way they go, I'm not gonna be too happy about it. My sentiment is if that's the way they go, all right. Like, Because it's such a weakness in the system, a guy that could be a quick mover, who could hit at the top of the lineup, who could get on base, and uh, some scouts feel he could stay at shortstop. Uh, If not, he can be an everyday second baseman. Some feel his arm is strong enough to play third, potentially. He would be number three on my list, not number one. Um, But I'll be okay with it. Not excited, but okay with it. The guy that I really like... Um but that seems to be rising in mock drafts and sounds like he's tied to some other teams and won't be there at number twelve. Um is Sal Frelick, uh the outfielder out of Boston College. Super interesting player. Super interesting. He's only 5'9, 175, uh 80, he's a plus plus runner, um outstanding contact hitter who doesn't hit for power at this point, but some scouts think he might develop a little bit of pop. But just sounds like a guy who can play all three outfield positions, legitimate uh, center fielder, can play every day there, legitimate leadoff-type hitter. But that's a guy that as every day goes by, it seems like he's he's less and less likely to fall to the Mariners. Um, and then the other guy that's been linked to the Mariners a lot as a college bat is Colton Cowser. Again, not ex, not ex, would not be inspired by that pick at all because we drafted Zach Deloach last year. And from everything I've seen of Cowser, he's Zach Deloach. He's a good athlete. He can hit. He's got some power. He can play all three positions, but he's not a true center fielder. Like, we have enough of those guys, I feel like, in our system that I wouldn't be that excited about adding another one, which leads me to your point. For the first time in Jerry DePoto's era, in fact, I don't even think he ever drafted a high schooler with the Angels. Um, Benny Montgomery is a kid that really intrigues me. As a high school outfielder out of Pennsylvania, 6'4", 200 pounds. Um, from what I've seen, you know, you, you watch raw video, and it's usually batting practice or, or the kids, you know, shagging fly balls. Not a lot you can tell, but, but from what I'm reading, from what the scouts say, has tremendous raw power. He won a home run derby at an all-star game recently. Uh, and and at 6'4", 200, combine that with some scouts have timed him and – have placed an 80 grade on his run tool. Um, the swing needs some work. It's a little uh, uneven at this point, but the Mariners have shown that they're very adept at taking guys and tweaking their swings. Um, they're doing it with Taylor Chamel. They did it with Jake Fraley. They've done it with some guys from other organizations. Jake, Jake Shiner, who came over from the Phillies a couple years ago and uh, is really tearing it up at double a. He's another guy that they, they did a swing change with. So, I don't mind this year taking a... All right, so some technical difficulties there. Um, this just doesn't happen, but the Wi-Fi at the Dan Cave Studios just decided to take a dump. Literally, just cut out. No Wi-Fi. But uh, got a hold of Eric, uh, thanked him for coming on the show. We were, we were about to wrap things up anyway. We had just finished up our our three kind of favorite draft targets of the Mariners uh, for the upcoming draft this weekend. So that's going to do it for episode 19 of the Emerald city sportscast. Thanks for listening. I want to remind you again, Seahawk fans, mark your calendars a week from this coming Monday, July 19th, Monday the 19th from about three o'clock till six o'clock at Ozzie's Tavern in Seattle, a live streamed live podcast event where I'm going to combine my podcast with the guys from the Seahawks Playbook Podcast, Bill Alvstad and Keith Myers. They're going to be in town. It's a very special event. We want as many people to show up as possible. We've got some great giveaways, Seahawks tickets, Seahawks gift cards, great food and drink specials. The folks at Aussies are really kind of rolling out the red carpet for us. It's going to be a lot of fun. So be there, be there early, come for lunch, come for before happy hour. If you come before 3 or after 6, then you'll get a chance to chat with me, chat with Keith, chat with Bill. If you get there early, you can fill out your raffle, get in on the giveaways, give us your questions. We can address those. Corbin Smith of Seahawk Maven is also going to join us, and we're working on a couple other things at this point too. So please, turn out. We would love to see you all at Aussies. Until then, that's going to do it for me. I am Dan Viennes, host of the Emerald City Sportscast, emanating from the Dan Cave Studios, just down the road from the Seahawks VMAC headquarters. Follow me on Twitter at Seahawks Forever. Subscribe to the YouTube channel, Emerald City Sportscast, and if you can give a review to the podcast, that really helps as well, too. Next week, very special episode, we will recap the Mariners draft in detail with none other than Jason Churchill of the Baseball Things Sportscast and prospectinsider.com. He, nobody knows the Mariners farm system inside and out, as well as Jason. He's going to come on to break down the draft with me. That's next week, and then the week after that is the live show, at Aussie's, Thanks for joining me. Have a wonderful weekend and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening.